Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I am joined by Chef Kate Koo. She's the executive chef and owner of Zilla Sake in Portland, Oregon. Don't let the name confuse you. It's not just a sake bar or anything like that. They also have a fantastic sushi program that she basically installed from when the restaurant first opened and was running it and then became part owner of the restaurant and then became full owner of the restaurant. So I wanted to have Kate on for quite a while. Me and Kevin Wang, I think it was like on our second episode, there's a little snippet in there where we actually talk about her and just female sushi chefs. And there's not a whole lot, not in America, certainly less in Japan, just because of the stigmatism that kind of still flows through the sushi community in Japan with women being behind the counter and running the restaurant and everything like that too, as well, an apprenticeship and just how everything's organized with family lineage and taking over businesses and stuff like that too. So Kate hasn't had an easy career. Getting into sushi is just not something that a lot of sushi masters or old you know, sushi chefs who are from Japan really want to take on a female chef and a female apprentice, essentially. So she had to navigate all that and you know, worked her way up through kind of the organization of you know sushi from you know just going to the rice and then handling fish and doing all that and now runs her own restaurant and has a fantastic sake program there that has somewhere between 50 and like 100 different bottles that they can do like by the glass it's one of the best sake programs in america so if you've never heard of them or anything like that you can check them out check them out on instagram you can follow kate at kate yanagi ku so kate and then y-a-n-a-g-i K-O-O. That's her Instagram handle. And also the restaurant you can follow at Zilla, Z-I-L-L-A, Sake, S-A-K-E, P-D-X. And it's all no spaces, no underscores, anything like that. But those are the two accounts that you can follow for the restaurant. You know, we get to talk sushi, her career, and sake. So this is kind of a great 100th episode for us. This is our 100th interview episode. You know, we've had more episodes that we did with different concepts and stuff like this. But in terms of just the interviews of chefs and sommeliers and restaurant owners, this is our 100th one. So couldn't think of a better guest to have on. You know, I always love talking sushi and sake, something I'm a little knowledgeable about, but nowhere near the level of someone of Kate's stature who went through the, you know, the diploma programs and everything like that. It's still just a lot of fun for me to chat with someone of her pedigree who knows all these ins and outs of sushi and can answer any question that I have without an issue and is so knowledgeable and obviously super talented too as well. So can't wait to get out to Portland and this will definitely be one of our first stops whenever that trip happens as we kind of touch on. So you can follow us on Spoon Mob too as well. Find all of our episodes and everything on our website. So at Spoon Mob on Instagram, it's either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob One on whatever other social media outside of Instagram. Our website is SpoonMob.com. We have profiles of all the different chefs that we've had on the podcast. So anyone from episode one to episode 100, uh, there's a page for them. We got running updates since they've last been on the podcast. Anything that's happened, you know, major noteworthy things in their career move to a different restaurant, open a new restaurant, start a new concept. We kind of put that in there. And then once they come back on the podcast, uh, if they do, you know, we talk about it and cover it and then it goes into the episode and we'll just keep a running update for everybody's page. But everybody's got a page up there. It's always the top is kind of the latest episode and the bottom is the earliest episodes. And there's a handful of sushi chefs that are on there that I had great experiences with. Haven't had them on the podcast basically because they are only fluent in Japanese and I am not. So maybe one day that's something that will change and we'll be able to have some 
Japanese chefs on and figure out how to do a translation episode or something like that. But that's further down the road. That's just kind of a food for thought thing. You can write into the podcast. There's a contact portal on the website, or you can email us directly, spoonmabayahoo.com. Appreciate all the questions, comments, feedback that we get from everybody. If you have a question for a chef, restaurateur, sommelier, feel free to write that in. We'll incorporate it in the next episode that we can, one that kind of fits the best with whatever your question is. Usually as long as it's not something that we covered during the research portion, you know, that we go through with their career. If it's something that they answered on their own or we'll kind of swap it out, but uh, we'll get it in there on one of the episodes for you. And then we'll email you or hit you up on Instagram, let you know when that episode with your questions coming out. So you kind of be part of the podcast and we kind of continue it that way too as well. So it's one of the fun things that we do. New episodes are on Thursdays. They drop on YouTube a week later. So if YouTube's your preferred platform, you're behind a week, but just hit us up on one of the podcast apps. We're on all of them. Got all that stuff updated. Everything should be good to go. So if you find any issues or any episodes that don't play, just shoot me an email, shoot me an Instagram, shoot me a message through the website, whatever. Just let me know what episode it is and what player that you're using, and I'll get it corrected. There shouldn't be any outstanding issues from anything. I think I got all that taken care of, but just in case I missed anything, just hit me up, let me know. But you can go through the backlog at the catalog. If you haven't listened to all the episodes, I encourage you to do so. There's always something great in there for everybody, I feel. Even if it's something, you know, you're not super into wine or you're not super into vegetarian cuisine or don't really understand fish or anything like that. We have an episode on kind of all that stuff. And I think it's all valuable information that, you know, you should check out, especially if you're into food or uh, maybe there's one of the things that you don't understand. Or even if you are super knowledgeable on one of those topics too, as well, I think there's something in there that maybe you didn't know, or maybe that'll kind of jog your memory or something like that. And you'll make you go, "Uh uh-huh. But without any further delays, this is my conversation with Chef Kate Koo, the owner and executive chef at Zilla Sake in Portland, Oregon. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day and coming on the podcast. I know you're busy. You're running a restaurant there and looks amazing. I have not had the pleasure to formally be there for food or anything yet. Portland is on our short list. I still want to do like a Pacific Northwest trip. You know, we've been to Vancouver and, and Seattle and San Francisco, but I kind of want to hit all those and, and Portland just kind of run down the PNW coast there. So hopefully sometime soon, that's kind of like a, one of the top level, like dream trips, if you could kind of build it out. Hopefully we'll be able to kind of check out Silasake for ourselves and everything and, and what you have going on. But before we kind of get to your sake career and then also owning the restaurant and everything, I always like to start at the beginning with everybody and their career. So how did you kind of first get involved? Because you're originally born in Seoul, grew up in Oregon. At some point, you're working in Arizona before you go to college in Hawaii. So how did you first get involved with restaurants and cooking? So my first experience in a restaurant was not cooking. It was dishwashing uh, when I was 15 and in an Italian restaurant that a bunch of my friends had were either currently or previously had worked at. And, and I feel like within our group of friends, it was kind of this rite of passage almost to dishwash at Mozzie's. And I had eaten there actually as a kid quite a bit with my parents. And so it seems like a good, you know, natural first step, you know, high school student is looking for a part-time thing. So I started as a dishwasher and then... Then I did a short stint um, actually in fast food at Taco Bell. And I have to say, because people are always like, what? <laughs> I'm like, hey, you know, first of all, I was in high school. It's a, it's a decent, you know, high school job. You learn a lot of structure and food safety guidelines and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, even as a sushi chef, I mean, I've been a sushi chef now for 22 years. And there are things that were part of my training 
at Taco Bell, believe it or not, that I still employ in my, what I do now and, and kind of my mode of operation with things. I mean, not a lot of things, but there are definitely things um, that they teach about being efficient and being clean, you know, just those kinds of things that actually really stuck with me. Um, and then after that, I graduated from high school. I started working in a Japanese restaurant. I think at the time it was like one of the only Japanese restaurants in the town that I grew up in. And my it was a place that my dad frequented um, for lunch and they needed somebody. And I went in and I worked as a server for a year for front of house. That job also taught me a lot of hustling and efficiency and just learning how to move quickly in a restaurant. And then I moved down to Arizona with a friend of mine and was looking for a serving job, you know, in a Japanese restaurant. That's what I'd been doing. And I really was incredibly lucky that I came across a restaurant that was looking for a sushi chef and not a server. And they told me that if I was willing to put in the time and effort, they would start sushi training. And at the time I was 19, I had no previous professional culinary experience, didn't have a good knife to take to work, any of that stuff. But from the first day I was there, I just absolutely fell in love with it. And um, sushi has been something that has driven me and fueled me in my career and also, you know, just personally ever since. But I consider that to be an extremely fortunate, serendipitous situation that I found myself in. At the time, was Arizona even a state that was relatively even known for sushi? Believe it or not, in uh, the Phoenix area, and I was in the East Valley, so lived in Tempe, worked in Tempe, really close to ASU. Uh, Phoenix was kind of like right on the tailcoat, I think, of LA with a lot of pop culture things, right? So I got into sushi in 2000. At the time in Arizona, sushi was already popular. Sushi chefs had this modern time in sushi that I think sushi was really flourishing. And there was this kind of sense of pride that I really felt getting into sushi because people were like, wow, this is really, really cool. Sushi was taking off. There were a number of popular sushi restaurants, popular with young people as well. Maybe, you know, some of that was the college culture down there. And people are always surprised, like sushi in the desert. And I'm like, well, if you think about it, we get a lot of our fish flown over from Japan, from Hawaii. You know, those flights are coming into LA and they're either coming up the West Coast, you know, to Portland, Seattle, San Francisco. Sometimes they come into San Francisco or, you know, they're being flown to Phoenix, Chicago, Utah. I don't know, but, you know, other places. And so as far as the quality of things goes, you know, it's not really a concern that you're not on the coast because, you know, we do utilize a fair amount of local resources here, but a lot of our stuff is flown in internationally. And so it's just as easy to get it, you know, to Phoenix as it is up to Portland. So how did you wind up going to the University of Hawaii in Hilo? Because you got a degree in linguistics. So were you still kind of on this path of wanting to do something else with your career, even though you started kind of working in a sushi restaurant? You know, when I first started doing sushi, it was kind of an original goal to own my own sushi bar one day. And then I joke that I spent about half of my career trying to get out of sushi and do something else. So I was in Arizona for about a year, just under. I came back to Portland. Um, and while I was doing sushi, I, I went back to college and um, I took a psychology class, actually, that 
kind of piqued my interest in children's acquisition of language. So first and language acquisition in, in young children. And UH is known um, to have a good linguistics program. And they also, you know, of course, have a large native Japanese speaking population and other Asian languages, which I was interested in. I pitched the idea to my parents that I wanted to go to Hawaii and go to school. And um, they were very supportive of it. I think, you know, knowing that UH has a very good degree program for linguistics was was helpful. But that's how I ended up in linguistics and wasn't sure what I was going to do with that. Thought maybe I would go all the way through PhD, teach at you know, UH maybe even. And sushi though, during that time and then in kind of some other stints I've had with other things, I just always felt it pulling me back in and finally, you know, pulled the trigger, Botzilla. <laughs> I'm in it all the way now for sure. I don't know if it was while you're in school or after school, but you work at a fish importer, Hilo Fish Company, I think. Did you just need a job or was that, let me understand the background of how fish moves logistically from Japan to here. Did you want to understand that process or was it just simply, I need a job? Um, I graduated from school and spent a very anxious couple of months not working. And I actually applied at Hilo Fish to make sushi for them for like platters that they would sell to grocery stores and stuff like that. So it was definitely more along the vein of, you know, needing a job, something I was qualified for. And then I ended up getting put into the international purchasing department. And I was responsible for bringing containers over from Asia and, you know, selling the product to our clients in the state of Hawaii. So that was kind of my, my area. There were other people that sold, you know, to other places on like the mainland US. But in the end, it became a really valuable thing for me because I did learn that supply chain. And even though it wasn't something that was my original objective working there, I would say, and I wasn't there for too long, I learned quickly that I need to move around while I'm working. And it's hard for me to sit in one place and do the, the office thing. But, but it was a very valuable experience. Absolutely. Did you have a point where you decided to be all in with becoming a sushi chef and leaving the linguistic kind of career path behind? Was there a singular moment where you look back and you can kind of point to and go, that was the moment that changed that I went all in? I think it was more of a progression for me. So kind of to fill in another intermediary story, um, after my stint in linguistics in Hawaii, I moved back, started at Zilla in 2008. So I've been there for a long time. And during that time, even I, I went back to school again to go down the path of doing a master's in mathematics to teach math. Like I said, I mean, there have been all these different times when I was trying to get out of sushi, get out of the restaurant business. But I think the combination for me was at Zilla, I came in as the head sushi chef. In fact, I was the only sushi chef originally, and I helped set up the sushi program there and got that going. There was a friend of mine who I helped train to do sushi there who had been bugging me for a long time. We should really do our own thing. We should really open a restaurant. I'm like, yeah, I mean, maybe at some point. The stars kind of aligned all at this one time where the owner of the restaurant was ready to do something else. I was ready to, at that point, actually to move on and to open my own place and the timing was really good where it made more sense for me to take over Zilla at that point than to kind of go off on my own venture. And I felt so invested already in Zilla because I'd been there for over seven years when we, you know, were having this conversation about me 
buying her out. If I was coming in to buy a restaurant that was already established, I don't think that would have been a good fit for me. But because I had been there for so long and because I had started the sushi program and um, and it was doing really well, I think that that connection that I've always felt to Zilla um, was the reason that that was the right move for me. Before you wind up at Zilla, did you ever consider going to Japan in training to be a sushi chef? You know, you're already in Hawaii, you're on the big island, but if you go over to Honolulu, there's a couple notable sushi restaurants too as well. So, you know, that was also potentially another avenue, but you wound up coming back to essentially the mainland US. Why? After I left Hilo Fish, I found myself back in a hot kitchen. Actually, well, and I say back in, but I really don't have much experience in hot kitchens. But I found myself in a hot kitchen as a daytime prep cook. I mean, I liked the job. The job was great. And working nine to five, Monday through Friday in a restaurant is almost unheard of. So the hours were good. And I liked the people and everything. Uh, but I was offered a job back in Portland as a sushi chef. In Hilo, where I was, uh, Hilo is a pretty small town. Um, it's the second largest city in the state of Hawaii, but it's, you know, like 45 to 50,000 people. So um, there weren't a lot of sushi opportunities there, you know, with kind of what I was looking for. So when I got offered the job back in Portland, I originally turned it down. I was like, I, you know, I live in Hawaii. I didn't at that point have a whole lot of intention of, of coming back anytime soon um, to Oregon. But I thought about it. It was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. And so that was not at Zilla. That was at a different restaurant, but that's what got me back to Portland. Yeah. And then from there, like I said, most of the time I've been back, I've spent at Zilla. So they reached out to you essentially, right? And they were like, hey, you know, we have this position. How did they find you? They found me because the head sushi chef that was opening that restaurant ran into somebody at a bar that knew me. And I think either they overheard the conversation that, you know, chef was looking for, for sushi chefs, or I'm not exactly sure how that conversation went, but he got my phone number and reached out to me. And I still had, you know, my Portland phone number to circle back. And as far as why I didn't, you know, seek out maybe um, some more traditional training or something like that on Oahu or try to go to Japan. I think some of it was where I was at in my career at that time. I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in sushi. At that point, I probably would have opted to stay on the linguistics path. But, you know, I needed to pay bills. And after leaving Honolulu Fish, I just I needed something, whether I was going to stick with that particular job long term or not in the meantime. And, and as far as going to Japan, I mean, it's something that for a long time, early on in my career, I dreamed about, you know, going to Japan, getting some really serious training. But as I always say, I've got two strikes against me as a sushi chef. I'm Korean and I'm a woman. And I mean, really the third strike is I'm American raised. So for an older Japanese sushi chef in Japan to take me on as a student, not to say that it wouldn't be possible, but it would be very unlikely, I guess. That being said, you know, in the U.S., I was lucky enough to be trained by a couple of older Japanese gentlemen that were hard enough on me to really help kickstart my sushi career. And I will always be grateful to them, you know, for the influence that they had on me. You never went to culinary school. All your training was pretty much on the job and in restaurants. I always ask this to anybody who has a chef background that comes on the podcast. If somebody was in your kitchen now today came up to you and they're like, Hey, I want to open my own restaurant one day. Do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? 
I would tell them that it depends on the type of restaurant. It also depends on the person because I think there are some people who having that very formal training would, it would benefit them greatly if they were looking to open their own restaurant and run something later on. I think there are other people that can pick up just as much and, and gain just as much knowledge from hands-on experience. And, and I think that while culinary school is definitely worthwhile for a lot of uh, chefs, that I know coming out of culinary school, you still kind of start at the bottom of the pile. So that four years or two years, you know, whatever you choose in school doesn't mean that when you come out, chefs who are hiring look at you like you have four years of experience. They want that hands-on experience in addition. But I think, yeah, a lot of it is, you know, the type of food. Do you want to do classic French cuisine? If that's the case, then it might be a really good option for you to get that formal training. You know, if, if you want to open a sushi bar, I'd say probably not because sushi training is classically an apprenticeship. And that's the way I like to run my sushi bar. We do a lot of training and a lot of education, but where sushi is at now, I also know that that can be difficult, you know, for new sushi chefs to come by. So when you land at Zilla and like you kind of mentioned, you were originally supposed to replace somebody, but turned out there was no actual sushi bar yet. So you wound up opening the sushi bar side about, you know, a year after they originally opened. How challenging was that to build that from scratch? Like you have this experience from training under these other sushi chefs and been doing it, but now you're opening the concept essentially by yourself. I felt fairly well prepared to do that. I was an opportunity that I was excited about. And I remember getting off of the first phone conversation that I had with the original owner. And I was literally jumping and running around my apartment at the time. So I was ecstatic for that opportunity. Again, I mean, I thought I was replacing someone. I didn't realize I was going to be building it from the ground up. But truth be told, it was not the first sushi bar that I started for someone else. The first time I only had about a year's worth of experience. And I found myself I joke at Zilla about how, you know, this is not the first time this has happened in my career where I think I'm going in as a sushi chef, or I think I'm going in to replace a head sushi chef, uh, you know, for an opportunity. And I realized I was not only building the menu and the sushi program, but I was literally building the sushi bar. So screwing the tables together, deciding where everything was going. I think coming into Zilla, I felt a lot more prepared um, than the first time. I was not prepared the first time. It was much more fly by the seat of my pants. Um, the second time, I felt like this is something that I could do. And I did. I mean, you know, it's been a long road of progression and a long road of evolution at Zilla. But myself, with the help of many, many other people along the way, I mean, Zilla is amazing. I'm very proud of it. And and I'm grateful to so many people that have been a part of you know what we've done over the years and where we've gotten to today. But it really all started with screwing that prep table together <laughs> the first day that I came in. Once you kind of get it all constructed, in terms of kind of the supply chain and, and getting product and getting fish, were you able to leverage kind of any of your contacts from your fish importing days? Or did you have to build that from scratch too and just kind of reach out to whoever you knew kind of had quality ingredients through different contacts or recommendations? I couldn't use Hilo fish as a purveyor directly because Hilo fish is really big and they actually supply suppliers, I guess would be a good way to explain that. They're a little more behind the scenes. I had previous contacts from other jobs that I had had. I knew people that I could call to get product. And I have one sales representative now that I literally have known for 15 years, you know, ever since 
other than my time in Hawaii, he and I have known each other a really, really long time. I guess maybe it's been more than 15 years, I'd say 20 years. And then with that like four-year gap while I was gone, but back in like 2000, from like 2001, 2002. Were you able to utilize any local ingredients? And I only ask that because the Portland culinary scene is a very local, you know, transport farmers and stuff like that. Were you able to use any fish or was it really about the type of fish that you needed kind of had to come from Japan just in terms of quality and style and type? I think as far as sourcing goes, as a sushi chef in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of uh, ingredients, you know, seafood and otherwise at our fingertips here. And it's important that we use local sustainable products when we can. So, you know, obviously in the beginning, salmon, albacore, dungeness, like those things are pretty readily available here. They're relatively easy to source through different suppliers. And so those are the three initial things that I knew right off the bat, like these are going to be local. As my career has developed also and evolved over the years, I mean, I've definitely branched out into to other things. But I think that, you know, as a sushi chef, who does the kind of sushi that I do, because mine is more traditionally focused, very fish and ingredient driven. There's a certain amount of understanding that I have that if I want to do the type of sushi that I do, a lot of product is going to be needed to be sourced from overseas, you know, specifically Japan. And there's a balance there for sure. So we try to do as much as we can locally, but we definitely get a fair amount of product from from Japan as well. Is there a giant difference from like if you had the same fish and the option either caught from Japan caught locally. Is there a big difference? With some of them, yes. Um, Some of them are different species of that same fish. Um, You know, one thing that I talk a lot about uh, with sushi chefs that I'm training, as well as customers and our guests, is that in Japanese, when you talk about a specific fish and and you refer to it by the Japanese name, you are talking about a specific fish. It is almost as good as having, you know, the scientific name for it. Whereas in English, when we talk about fish, it's much more general. It may not tell you exactly what that fish is. When we're sourcing locally for things that we can also get from Japan. So a good example, I guess, would be sardines, Japanese sardines. And I'm not sure if with sardines, if it's a specific Japanese species, Pacific sardines, and if those Pacific sardines from the Oregon coast are going to be different than the Pacific sardines coming from Japan's coast. But we do see a difference in the fish. It's not a quality difference. It's a difference in size. There's a difference in color of the meat sometimes. There's a difference in you know, structurally small differences in the fish. And I think that it's because, I mean, it's coming from a different geographical location. So the the waters are different. What they eat is going to be different. The marine environment that it's coming out of, I mean, it's a totally different ecosystem here than it is off of the coast of Japan. You know, everything from temperature of the water to depth of the water. And, you know, like I said, it's food sources and that kind of thing. So we definitely see a difference, but I would say the most notable thing to point out is that most of the fish that we use that come from Japan for sushi at Zilla, we cannot get locally. And that's a big reason why they're coming from Japan and they're not coming off of the Oregon coast. Like I said, when we can get stuff from the Oregon coast, we love to utilize our, you know, our local supply, but some of the fish that we want to get are not, they're just not available. 
Rice is the most important part of sushi. Without giving away any secret ingredients or recipes or anything, what makes your rice different? Because each chef kind of has their own style, preparation method, what kind of type of vinegar that they use. Or, you know, I think Masa Takayama, he uses like truffle oil or truffles, I think, in his rice or something like that. Is yours traditional? Is yours like slightly tweaked to a personal specification or preference? Um, I like to think of our rice as being traditional or at, at least as much as I can say about the rest of our sushi traditionally focused, right? We use a proprietary blend of three different vinegars. Uh, two of those vinegars are red vinegar. One is very, very dark. The red vinegars are made from sake leaves or kasu. Using the red vinegar, that's an old school thing. It's an old school Edomai sushi thing, you know, Tokyo style sushi. And that wasn't something that we started doing or that I started doing until a little bit later in my career. But the thing that makes our rice different is um, visually it looks, people always ask, oh, I didn't, or they say, I didn't, I didn't know you could use brown rice for sushi. And, you know, we have to tell them this isn't brown rice. It's California premium short grain sushi rice. And then we talk about the vinegar. So I think the Akazu is a big thing that sets us apart. I don't think that there are a lot of sushi bars locally who are using the amount and types of red vinegar that we use. I think there is another sushi bar that uses like one type of Akazu. I think nationally, even it's not super common to see brown colored rice that's actually white rice colored with the Akazu. The other thing is it took a long time with the red vinegar and the blend of the three. So we use a rice vinegar um, and then two different types of red vinegar. So the proportions of those vinegars, also the proportions of the salt and sugar and kombu that we use in the rice uh, for making the rice, they've gone through adjustments over the years, not just due to our own evolution of taste, but also because there are times when we've had to switch brands of vinegar. When we get a new brand in, we, and I, this is, I think it's only been one time that we had to switch. And then another time when we decided to add the second type of vinegar, whenever we do that, we kind of have to, we have to take a few steps back and kind of reevaluate where we're at as far as what we want the vinegar to taste like. In terms of the rice itself, how hard is it to find what you're looking for? Like, obviously you have that kind of locked in now, but when first getting the sushi bar up and running, did you already kind of know who you wanted to go for, for the rice? Cause I didn't know this until talking with somebody who came on the podcast, but like Arkansas is like a giant place for rice, apparently sourcing your rice. Was that challenging or were you able to kind of already have that figured out and on the back burner? I had an initial brand of rice that I used, um, that I'd been using for a long time. And over the years, you learn about your product. And so you start branching out and trying different brands, trying different... Um, I went from a medium grain to a short grain rice, you know, in the second half of my sushi career. And originally, I liked the feel of the medium grain when I ate it. And so it was a conscious decision not to go to a short grain rice. But later on, you know, my opinion changed on that. And I think that we as sushi chefs are constantly evolving where anytime I hear a sushi chef who is so black and white about something that there's no room for evolution. When I hear a sushi chef talk about being so concrete about something that there isn't room to evolve, um, I realize that that is in stark contrast to how I feel because my entire career has been based on this evolutionary process to get me where I am. And I think that, you know, if I look back 10 years from now, 
I will probably feel different about a lot of things in another decade, you know, than I do now. And I think that that growth mindset is really important to keep things moving forward. And also it's important as a sushi chef to be open-minded. That is one of the things that I drive really hard behind my sushi bar because there are a hundred thousand ways to do things with sushi. You know, what I always tell people I'm training is as long as you have a reason for it, go with that until it doesn't work for you, right? I mean, make sure you have a reason for everything that you do. And and then if someone asks you questions about it, you'll be able to explain. So in the beginning, like the mouthfeel of medium grain rice, you know, maybe that was because I wasn't as experienced. Maybe it was because I didn't know about really high-end premium grade short grain rice yet. You know, I was limited in my knowledge and my experience at that time. And that's totally fine, you know, but I think leaving that door open to evolving is what gets us to those higher places. And so, yeah, I mean, now the rice I use, I don't think I even knew about it in the first three years of being a sushi chef, but this is the rice that I've landed on now. And it's working great for us until we decide that we want to switch and do something different. 2009, like, you know, at Zilla year or two, and then you start doing some teaching at like Sur La Tabla. What led to you wanting to teach outside of running the restaurant and probably already teaching people, you know, within your restaurant about sushi and stuff like that, but then you wanted to do more of it. I do love the training and teaching aspect of sushi. It, it gives me a lot of joy and a lot of fulfillment to have that educational piece as part of my career. When you brought up the teaching at Sur La Tava, I was trying to remember why it is that I even applied for that because it was like a, it was a one evening a month for like five hours or something. The Surlatov that was in the Pearl District in Portland here um, had an adjoining kitchen slash classroom. And my guess is I saw an ad for it somewhere. And again, though, I don't know why I would have been looking at job ads because I was at Zilla at the time working full-time, running a sushi bar there, training people. However, I ended up stumbling across that. Uh, it was really fun. It was great. I think I spent even more than I made at Sur La Tab on kitchen items while I, was, while I was working there. They gave a pretty good discount at the time. So I think most of my, my earnings, if not all or more, went back into the company. But yeah, it was just, it was a fun side thing. I taught a Korean cooking class once there as well. And it really wasn't for the money. It was definitely just to have that additional teaching piece. Fast forward a handful of years, you know, 2016, you wind up becoming co-owner of Zilla. And then a couple of years later, you take over the whole restaurant. But how did the opportunity to become a co-owner happen? It was with the person who my friend and co-sushi chef, a person who I had um, trained, you know, a significant portion in their sushi journey, um, who had been bugging me to do something on our own. At that time, you know, we learned that the owner of the restaurant would be willing to sell because, you know, she was ready to move on as well. And uh, so we went in together to buy Zilla. And then I think it was a couple years later, I ended up buying him out. With taking over like already an established restaurant, it's already there. You're already working there for a number of years. Is that easier or more difficult than going out, starting your own, trying to find financing and all that stuff if need be, or taking over a completely different, unfamiliar restaurant that maybe is for sale? Like which one of those paths is, I guess, the easiest? Or do they all have their own challenges? 
I don't know that there is an easiest. I think that they all have their own benefits and their own challenges. I very naively thought because I had been at Zilla for so long that I totally knew what I was getting into. And I quickly learned that being the owner, co-owner or sole owner is a totally different can of worms. So, you know, my biggest challenge, and I think the biggest challenge, whether you get a bank loan and start your own restaurant, or, you know, you are, you know, on the hook with investors, what, whatever it is, or you're just financially at a place where you can throw your own money in, whatever it is, starting a brand new operation, you know, comes with the challenge of not having a platform yet. So you're building your own foundation there. That being said, there are benefits to building a foundation from scratch and not having things that are already in place um, because you design it from the ground up. Whereas for me at Zilla, I had the benefit of having built the sushi program myself from the ground up, but the rest of the restaurant was already there and also had gone through quite a bit of evolution, you know, in the seven plus years before I took over. My position is unique because I am a working chef who is the sole owner. So I do not answer to a larger parent company. I do not answer to a board of directors. I do not answer to investors. I am my own boss for better or worse. And that also comes with its own challenges. My biggest challenge is balancing the owner aspect and all of the operational stuff, which is really more of a day job with, I work currently four nights of service a week as a sushi chef in my own restaurant. And that balance sometimes gets the better of me because I want to be 100% at both things. I want to be 100% as the owner and I want to be 100% as a coworker and a sushi chef alongside two other sushi chefs that I work service with. And inevitably, I have to be 50% and 50% because I have to oversee the whole thing. That being said, That 50% is for me personally. I mean, I have a head sushi chef, a designated head sushi chef who I am extremely grateful to and for, um, who does an outstanding job of running the sushi program for Zilla. But when I'm there, I am still working a full shift as a sushi chef. And that balance, I guess, for me, that I have to give 100% to the sushi bar as in run it, but I have to give, I want to give 100% of myself. And that's just not always possible that I, I do have to split that focus. That same year, you wind up passing WSET's level three Saki award certification, also with distinction. Did you start at level one or two originally? Why did you want to pursue certification in sake? I mean, obviously the restaurant had a sake program when you first started and everything. That's kind of what they're known for. And that's grown considerably, which I want to get to. But what led to you wanting to get into the field of sake and being certified in it? Before I was the owner, I did John Gauntner as a one of the world's foremost highly revered sake experts. Um, he splits his time between Japan and the US. And and I had taken his level one. Um, he has two levels. The second one is taught in Japan. Um, so I took his level one. And this was a number of years before I became owner. Sake for me became a secondary passion when I got to Zilla. I liked sake before that. I even had a favorite sake before that. But at Zilla, when I first came in, there were we had about 45 sake on the menu and which was an astounding number to me at the time with very little experience with the beverage. And, you know, most sushi bars have like 
three or four. I quickly also fell in love with sake and the stories, uh, the history, the fact that most of our sake at Zola and still is to this day, very small family owned, like multi-generational, many multi-generational owned breweries, very small artisan batches of this incredible product. And, and so it was kind of a natural progression for me to get into sake because I was at Zola. And it was necessary for me when I became the owner because now I was in charge of deciding what sake was going to be on our list and I wanted it to grow. So I think by the time I took over, I think we had like somewhere between 60 and 80, I want to say. And then that grew. I mean, and really, let's get real. Like you can't have too many more than 80 or it starts getting a little, you know, I think we pushed it up to about 95 at one point and that was, we're like, okay, all right, we're, we can't take on any more than this. But so the W set for me, I did, I or once I became the owner of Zola, and I felt like any continuing education that I can get in my field, especially that will benefit me as the owner of my establishment, is a good thing to do. Interestingly enough, there is no W set level two. There may be now, but at the time there was only level one and level three and level one, my sake mentor told me, and he was also my instructor for WSET. He was like, you don't need to take level one because you've already done John's class a number of years back and you have enough experience and knowledge that you should just jump right into level three. What was the most challenging part of the exam for you? The essay questions are extremely open-ended. And it's one of those, the more information you give, the higher you score, but they don't take away points for not including something. So, you know, like how they used to score the SATs, I think, where like a correct answer is worth whatever and no answer is better than a wrong answer, I guess. These essay questions were things like, you are making a Junmai Ginjo. Describe the process. And what they want to hear is all of the steps and as much detail as you can possibly put into that answer. So we're talking, you know, things like I'm choosing to use this kind of yeast because it yields this aroma and these flavors. The yeast was isolated in 1957 in, you know, Kagoshima or wherever it was. I mean, they want as much detail as possible. And it's a lot of information to remember, especially when you're dealing with such a simple open-ended question. Every sommelier has like one style of wine or one wine region that like got them hooked on wine. Was there a style of sake or a specific brewery or anything that kind of got you hooked? This was probably more challenging if I think about it than the essay questions. Despite the fact that I actually scored higher on the tasting portion of the exam than the written portion, it wasn't so much in the exam, but during the class, WSET is the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. Um, sake education was relatively new to them. And we were asked to approach tasting the way that you would wine. Then that is something I had no experience in. So learning how to smell something and talk in terms of specific aromas and flavors, like I get hair and cantaloupe out of this on the nose and on the palate I get, but those are not words we, well, the pear and melon, yes, but typically with, with sake, we approach in a more kind of holistic fashion. So we talk more about characteristics. We don't often pull out 
like in wine, you know, it's, oh, I'm getting dark chocolate with berries and a hint of tobacco. And like, we don't do that in sake. It's something we almost never do. And learning how to do that, I felt like I was in another world. You know, I was coming in with what I thought was a pretty good handle on sake knowledge. And all of a sudden I was being asked to approach it from like this completely different angle that I wasn't familiar with. And so familiarizing myself with that. And I was like staunchly opposed to this at the beginning of class, right? Like I said, I'm close with the person who was my instructor at the time, you know, we're friends and I'm really, I gave him hell about it. Like, what are you talking about? Why do we have to do this? This is, this is an abomination to all sake education and approach that I've ever learned in, you know, and he was like, you're just going to have to get over it and do it. And it was one of those things that at the end really was so beneficial because it added this complete separate aspect of sake knowledge for me and ability to actually be able to taste like that. So in the end, I was grateful to it. But yeah, I mean, I put up quite a fight at the beginning of the class. But yeah, so regionally, my favorite sake before I came into Zola uh, was Yukino Bosha, their Junmai Ginjo. And uh, Yukino Bosha comes from a brewery up in Akita, Ken, which is the prefecture. Ken means prefecture. And it's about 40 minutes south of Akita Shi, which is Akita City. And it's along the coast. Uh, it gets really cold in the wintertime. And it's it's great for brewing. The water, the temperature, the town is fantastic. And it's one of my favorite places on earth. So that for me, any sake really from Akita has a special place in my heart. But, but specifically around this area, the town is called Yuri Honjo any sake from that brewery is like on the very top of my list of all sake of all time. After kind of all that happens, I think 2017, you guys do a renovation. What all did you change? What all did you kind of fix within the restaurant? Was there anything that you always kind of had your eye on? Like if I ever get the chance to fix that, whether it was a table or like a window or whatever. Yeah. I know we're doing all this over here, but that I want to do that too. No. So we wanted to expand. That was the the original purpose. So we actually took over the address next to ours and uh, busted through the wall. And that was like the main focus of that renovation. We called the renovation, we called the expansion. And that became our, what we call the bar bar. So we have the sushi bar and we have the bar bar. The original bar that housed the sushi bar, the liquor bar, the dishwasher, all of those things were behind one bar in the original space. We moved that bar over to the bar bar side, and then we rebuilt the sushi bar. And that was another really important part of that expansion and renovation because we built a metal frame, faced it in wood, and we wanted it to look like a more traditional Japanese high-end sushi bar. So we got rid of the showcases we now have drawers underneath that we pull that are the refrigerators where we keep the fish during service. Um, so the top of the bar looks very clean. You know, there are no showcases with pieces of fish in there or anything like that. It's all wood and and I love it. It's it's exactly what what we wanted and what we're going for. Those two things, expanding and then rebuilding the sushi bar to look more traditional. When you become sole owner of the restaurant, was there any increase in aspiring women chefs reaching out to work 
now that you were in complete control of the restaurant or was it still kind of business as usual? Like, I'm just curious, you know, because in that scenario, you would think that anybody who's aspiring to be either a sushi chef who was a woman or even just maybe a woman chef in general that wanted to learn sushi, you should be somebody that they would reach out to because you have this untraditional path. And it's also look where you kind of wound up. Like now you own your own business too, as well. You have any sort of extra contact from anybody or was it just business as usual? I will say that business as usual for me has always been interested in and trying to support more women getting into sushi. So as far as the business as usual, I would say, yes, it was still business as usual when I became the sole owner, because that's something that was not just on my radar, but something that I really tried to incorporate into my career um, as much as I could, even before I was the owner at Zilla. And there have been multiple women sushi chefs that have come through Zilla that I've trained. Those were, one came on before I was owner, stayed on, and then the other came on after I was the owner, but not after I was the sole owner. I have had people reach out and um, I will say one, I'm not always great at the correspondence because um, I get about a hundred emails in my inbox a day and sometimes I do miss things. But I will say that it is difficult because, you know, I've had people who are women who like they want to come stage. They want to come. They're like, oh, you know, like I've been cooking. I really want to get into sushi. I'm super inspired by your story. And I'm always extremely flattered. And I'm always extremely honored that they reached out. But logistically, it's difficult because behind a sushi bar, you can't really just do a quick stage. Like somebody's in town for the weekend and they're like, hey, I want to come learn about sushi. Because for us, training takes just as much energy as learning. Unless you're planning on making your career sushi, if you want to move over to the sushi side from you know the hotline side or something like I'm always thrilled to train and guide and support women in any field that is male dominated. So whether it's sushi or something I don't know about, I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's it's something that as we evolve as human beings, we just need more of, more influence from more diverse sources with everything. That being said, it is difficult in sushi, like unless you live in Portland and you're looking for a sushi job. I mean, you could live in Portland, be looking for a sushi job, whatever your background and your gender and your age is, like the most important thing is that you live here and you can actually come work. For me, staging somebody for a few hours, you know, if they want to come check out Zilla or see what sushi chefing is like, it detracts from my ability to be a sushi chef. Being a sushi chef, just doing the job itself is extremely difficult. So any time that you take away from it also has to be worth time taking away from it. Like the person has to be serious. You can't just come and stage for a day. Like you're not going to learn. That's the other part of it too. You got to be committed, you know, at least for a certain amount of time, maybe not your whole life, but for enough of a time that you're going to be in it. And I think that one thing that hotline cooks and chefs who come over to sushi realize is there isn't a lot of crossover in that Venn diagram. We will be asking them to do things that they are taught in a hot kitchen. Don't ever do this. And they have to really reprogram and rewire their brains. We do a great deal of cutting toward ourselves, things like that. 
sushi just operates differently. And I think having both hot cooking experience, cooking experience, and, you know, sushi experience is an amazing thing in a career. I mean, I think that the more well-rounded you can be in whatever field you're in is always a benefit to you. But I feel like there are more sushi skills that you can employ if you were to go from sushi to hot kitchen than moving from a hot kitchen into a sushi bar. And so for that reason, it is difficult because staging is really a short training session, but the things that you will learn first are going to take six months to get comfortable with. You know, during COVID pandemic, how was that for the restaurant? Because I mean, sushi is not something that, I mean, you can do take out and can travel. It really is, depending on the style, it's really about kind of when it's right in front of you, that's the moment that it's going to be the best. And every second that passes deteriorates, quote unquote, is kind of the tradition or belief. So how did you guys navigate COVID and the pandemic and everything? It was really hard. I mean, obviously, I dug my heels in for the first three weeks that we were open for to-goes. And keep in mind that when we got shut down for COVID, we had not done a to-go order in five years. So that to-go orders were not our thing. That was one of the first things when I took over as owner that I was like, Nope, we're not doing this anymore. We're our sushi is meant to be eaten right away. I don't want it to go home in a box, sit in somebody's car for 90 minutes while they run to the store or whatever and then get eaten later. So I was like, we're not gonna do sushi to go, even when we reopen for to go. So we started with bento boxes and we were trying to do kind of some traditional-ish Japanese things. We did um nikujaga, which is a beef dish. We did um sukiyaki and chicken karaage. <laughs> you know, we like really tried to branch out and do these other things. After about three weeks of that, we were getting to-go orders, but I was like, this is not going to sustain us. And people kept asking, oh, when are you going to do sushi to go? Well, we're not really planning on it, you know, but after a few weeks, I realized in order to survive this, I'm going to have to just bite the bullet and we're going to have to do sushi to go. And that being said, <laughs> we now actually still do to-go orders. So I kind of like doubled back on my original thing, taking over as owner, like this isn't something we're going to do. And now we're still doing it. I mean, I think the time now is different, obviously, than it was uh, eight years ago when I took over. And there are still some bumps in the road that we're navigating, even left over from COVID and the pandemic. And, you know, for the most part, we are back rolling along, doing what we do, and um, we're busy, things are great. But there are definitely things that come up where I'm like, oh, okay, so we're not 100% back to normal here. There are definitely things that little potholes in our way that, that are causing some bumps. And so for that reason, you know, we've decided to keep the to-go's. We don't do many to-go's now, maybe you know, one or two a night. As everyone is, was saying, that pivoting for us was like a 180-degree pivot because I really didn't want to do sushi to-go. And I just I had to realize that if I wanted any chance at the other end to be able to reopen and still have a restaurant, that we were going to have to do sushi to-go. That being said, in some ways, the pivot was not much of a pivot for us because we just decided to do what we always had done and put it in a box instead. So the menu was the same. You know, we offered the same sushi. Um, we did keep the karaage going during that time and we it is still on our menu now. But as far as the sushi goes, I didn't want to change too much because I didn't want to have to pivot back if we had the chance to reopen. And in the end, I'm glad that things worked out the way they did. 
since you kind of first started at Zilla, the sake menu, like you mentioned, kind of doubled, got up to 90 or 100 different sakes available at one point. How does it kind of reach that point? Like, how do you go about building that menu and all these different options? You know, I know you said you mainly look for kind of smaller purveyors, family owned, but how do you decide when something's worthy enough to put it on that menu? The vast majority of the sake that I have access to here is all worthy of being on the menu. It's a matter of filling out the different corners and specific things for the sake, making sure that we have a lot of like good staple crowd pleasers that we know we can push, we know we can sell, which isn't hard given the selection that we get to choose from, which is an amazing, diverse, wide range of sake that we have access to. So for me, it's about how much do I really like this sake? How interesting is it? What is the story behind it? Can I sell this to somebody not just because I think it's an excellent sake, but because, you know, this is a brewery that's been in business for, you know, well over a hundred years or maybe 300 years. Where is it? Geographically, I want to have a good array of sake. So I don't want everything as much as I love Akita and everything that Akita produces for sake. Like I don't want all the sake to come from Akita. I absolutely need to make sure that we're covering the, you know, the ground all the way up. And we have sake all the way from Hokkaido, uh, you know, that's produced there all the way down to Kyushu because we want to make sure that we're hitting on all of those different regionalities. Sake is extremely regional. And I want to make sure that we are covering, you know, all colors of the rainbow with the selection that we have and that we're offering to people as well. With the by the glass section, you guys do a lot of it. Why don't more restaurants who do have sake programs do more by the glass, you know, BTG selections? It's simply cost and demand. It's not cost effective. For us, because of the volume of sake sales that we do, which I think is probably disproportionate to the number of seats in the restaurant, because most of what people are buying from us is sake. So not because people are drinking too much. That's not what I'm implying there. But, but because, you know, sake is our focus. And yes, we do have a white wine and a red wine, which are both good wines, you know, that you can have. And we do have a limited full bar and we do have beer taps. What people come to us for is sake. So for that reason, the majority of our beverage sales is sake. They're not selling enough volume probably to make it worth it. It's very difficult if you don't have the volume of sake sales to have 50 to 100 bottles open and sell them all by the glass. It's much better to keep those bottles closed a lot of places will do like the little 300 mil bottles so that you don't have to buy like a full 720 milliliter sake bottle. But, you know, for us, we turn over the product fast enough that we can, we can keep those open. It also helps that sake stays good for a long time once it's open. I don't want to overinflate what we're doing with sake. Sake saves really well. We keep it in a fridge. We take care of our product because we do sell a lot of sake because that's what people come to us for as far as the the bar side of things goes, it allows us a little more flexibility to have more bottles by the glass. 
pairing wise, is there any traditional guidelines like with wine? Like mainly wine is more about flavors and the food you're mashing it. But, you know, everybody has the theory that it's, you know, white goes with fish, red goes with meat. And that is true, but you can jump colors here or there, you know, sweet wines with dessert and whatnot. Is it similar with sake? Like unfiltered or filtered goes better with certain menu items? Or is it kind of just really about profile versus, you know, what you're pairing it with? You know, for me, there is definitely sake that go better with certain things. For me, those are more specific sake. Like if somebody's having a hamachi kama, they're going to ask like, oh, you know, what glass of sake should I get next with this? And I'm probably not going to choose like a 35% polished daiginjo for that. That being said, there's no wrong pairing, in my opinion, in sake, because sake is always the backup singer, and the food is always the lead singer. So sake is there to support the food. It is never there to take over or to be as equally prominent. So you really can't go wrong. I mean, even if you wanted to drink like a super sweet nigori with like a really, you know, savory hamachi kama, like it's not going to be bad. There are sake that I think might pair better, but you can't really get a bad pairing because sake will never overpower the food. People are creatures of habit. How do you get someone to either try a sake they didn't like the first time or before? How do you jump that barrier? People usually when they have a bad experience with whatever it is, they're pretty averse to ever having it again. So how do you navigate that, whether it's, you know, through the pairings or whatever, or somebody's like, oh, I, I've had that before. I don't like that. We talk about what a wide variety of sake there is out there. So I believe that there is a sake that everyone can find palatable. Maybe sake won't become their favorite beverage. I mean, we like to try to make sake everybody's favorite beverage, but maybe they are just a diehard whiskey drinker and they're like, you know what? This is never going to really be my thing. I still think we can find something that they will enjoy. And, you know, we have everything from really, really dry to really sweet nigori. We have sake that are bolder, earthier, floral, fruity, delicate, like the full range of flavor and aroma is there. And I think that we just try to learn more about them and what flavors they like. And then we pick something and we always say, as well, if you don't like what you order, we'll figure that out for you. We want people to be comfortable, to explore. Sometimes um, it's a matter of doing a flight for them. So we we have flights at Zilla. And right now, although we will be changing this in the future to go back to having some set flights, we only do custom flights right now. There are no parameters on the flight other than you pick three or you pick five. Outside of that, you can say, I want three sake that are very similar. I want three sake that will give me a really good idea of some, you know, the basic kind of quintessential styles of sake. I want sake that's all going to be really, really dry, you know, and those are also ways that we kind of can help guide people to find something that that they like. I don't think at Zilla I have ever in my almost 15 years there ever had somebody come in and say, I don't really like sake and leave saying, yep, that's pretty much what I thought it was going to be. Like we have such ability there because of how many we have to let people kind of 
figure out what works for them in sake. Do they want it cold? Do they want it warm? Some people really don't like warm sake, even if it's a great one that we would consider to be perfect to be warmed up. You know, maybe it's just not their thing. Maybe they want a low alcohol sparkling sake and that's what gets them going. I'm like, hey, you know what? We made some progress down that road. I consider that a success. We don't approach it with any kind of like judgment of, you know, somebody's like, I'm really into like the cloudy sake. We're not going to (laughs) go... what? Oh, you must be an amateur. Like, no, I mean, everybody's in their own place on their own journey as far as finding out what they like and don't like. And that's okay. We're just there to supply the sake so that they can figure that out for themselves and get as much input as they want from us. Mentoring younger chefs, you're pretty passionate about it. Has that gotten easier or more difficult due to all the challenges facing the hospitality industry over the past couple of years, you know, wages, inflation, the Me Too movement, people have left, you know, the industry. I don't know if people are necessarily coming back who have left or if there's just a new crop of people or what, but traditionally in sushi, you're kind of supposed to have a mentor, right? But that's not something that you had in your career and your journey. I know that's something that's super important to you, but has that become easier or more challenging over the past couple of years to keep pushing forward with that? I mean, the easy answer is that it's become more challenging. Why it's become challenging, though, I think is a harder question to answer. I think that the restaurant industry has changed. Uh, you know, some of that's due to COVID. Some of that's due to life and the evolution of of what the job market looks like. A lot of it does have to do with what we pay in wages now. And when I started making sushi, I am honestly proud and very humbled to say that I made $6 an hour. And at the time, that was great. Plus tips. I mean, I was really stoked about that, you know, but now just speaking specifically to the wage thing, like I have had to really reevaluate the words worth and value in terms of like monetary compensation for what chefs are doing, because I can't look at it the same way that with the same like metrics that I did when I started sushi. I mean, I have to understand that was a long time ago. That is not where minimum wage is at right now. You know, I think $6 an hour was was like just over minimum wage or minimum wage when I started. So, you know, now minimum wage is, is like it's creeping up to almost three times that. So I have to look at that compensation piece very differently than just belly aching about the fact that, oh, well, this is what I have to pay somebody with no experience now. It's not about that. It's still about somebody being serious about what they do. And whether that means they're a sushi chef for one month, they better be serious about it for that one month for me, in my opinion. I want to see if I'm going to train them that they're serious about it for whatever amount of time that they're in. There are a lot of people who get into sushi that realize that it's not for them. And that's totally fine. When I'm training, I ask that for the time that you give me behind the sushi bar, you understand that that's time I'm giving you as well. And that for that eight hours a day or six hours a day or 10 hours a day, whatever it is, you're serious about it during that time. And I think that as we watch the younger generation um, of sushi chefs come up now, we're kind of in this interesting part of something that I witnessed like over the last 10 to 15 years. And that is with the popularity of sushi growing, there are more people who want to be sushi chefs. I'm going to take a stab in the dark at this. I would guess that there are less fully trained sushi chefs maybe per restaurant than there were in the past. Like when I first started in sushi, my goal was to be fully trained at a certain point in my career, right? Like to be able to do all the things. And I started with prep work and I wasn't allowed to touch fish. And I'm grateful for that kind of traditional aspect of my training. It's like 
like what I do at Zilla now. And I continue to train that way as much as I possibly can, because what we've seen is this kind of influx of sushi chefs who are being trained to make rolls, maybe nigiri and work during service, because that's what we need as business owners. The problem with that is we're ending up with half-trained sushi chefs. Sushi chefs who come in and say, yeah, I can totally plate this sashimi plate. And I'm like, but can you cut the fish that it came from? No. I get that everybody goes about their training differently. Everybody is in a different place in their training. That's totally fine. You know, things are different than they were. That is very backwards from the traditional course, I guess, of apprenticeship and training that sushi chefs go through. Mine was kind of this weird conglomeration of traditional and totally non-traditional training. I found it important for me in my career to make sure that I appreciate the traditional side of training, you know, to make sure that I'm paying attention to traditional aspects of things as much as we are in this modern 2022 world of sushi in the United States, not in Japan. I still think that incorporating some of those things is really important to training and training sushi chefs properly. Is it still difficult for women who have a desire to get into the sushi profession to do so? I would think that there might be more opportunities, you know, to run established restaurants with, you know, when you look at kind of the labor shortage and especially in Japan, you know, you would think that they would eventually kind of open that up because they have declining birth rates and aging populations and all that stuff. So those restaurants are just going to go away and for some of their family legacies and everything, but maybe it's not even in Japan, but is it still difficult for women to get into the sushi profession? I would guess yes. Um, I would guess that it's easier than it was 20 years ago. You know, we're we're not trying to roll back 100 or 200 years of history here. We're trying to roll back like 2,500 years of history. And, you know, sushi has not been in Japan for 2,500 years, but I mean, it has an incredible historic past. And as women in sushi, we're not only fighting against the, the evolution of sushi, we're fighting against all those years and all those centuries and millennia of culture, Asian culture, Japanese culture, you know, and easy to argue that, you know, the scientific thinking people say like, oh, well, women's hands are warmer or, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, people want to make excuses for why women aren't accepted in, in sushi, even in 2022. And I think the real answer is not to try and make these things up like, oh, well, whatever you want to say about it, it's that it's simply not traditional. That's really where all of that comes from. It's not traditional for women to do certain things in Japanese culture, in a lot of Asian cultures. I mean, even in American culture, you know, there are this idea of women making their way in male dominated fields is, you know, and whether that's in the field of medicine or whether that's making sushi or whether that's, you know, being a welder, like, you know, whatever it is that was traditionally male dominated, we are, we're paving a way there. And, and that means that we will be fighting against all of the tradition that comes along with that. There may not be a rhyme or reason to that tradition other than it's the tradition, which in some ways is almost harder to argue against than some actual reason. And I think people want an actual reason, but it's just that it's not cultural. Like it's not culturally acceptable. I ask this to any sushi chef or anybody who's had a part of their career in sushi, lab grown fish, it's on its way. Is that something that you would work with? Is any intriguing possibilities for you with that or no? 
No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not going to say no black or white because who knows in like 30 years, I mean, maybe they're, maybe that will be the only option. I don't know, but I hope not. But no, I don't think lab grown fish is going to be my thing. As much as we can, we try to use wild product that is sustainable or farm product that is sustainable. That being said, I mean, we have done tuna events. We have gotten like bluefin tuna. Our products are not always the most sustainable, but we do what we can. But yeah, lab grown fish kind of makes me cringe a little. I will say the caveat to my answer is I know nothing about lab grown fish or the potential that we will be able to be supplied with lab grown. I don't know anything about it. That's just my initial like knee jerk reaction to would you want to serve sushi that was grown out of a cloned scale or something? And I'm like, no, I don't think so. I would much rather go in the direction, hey, let's use all these really small bycatch products from the ocean. Let's get away from the bluefins. Let's get away from the large. Let's really focus on sustainable fishing, small fish that we have an abundance of. Some of my favorite fish for sushi, small fish that are, you know, they're pretty abundant. We rarely get gigantic fish that take, you know, years and years to grow. I would much prefer if I had the option, hey, like, you know, in 30 years, would you rather serve lab grown fish or would you rather only serve like sardines? I would go the sardine 110%. When you get the chance to go out, I don't know if you eat sushi when you do, but if you do, are you able to enjoy the experience or are you analyzing and comparing the experience to the one that you offer? I think both, but I also enjoy the analysis and comparison. I don't come at it in like a snooty, holier than now type, you know, judgment about the sushi, but comparison and analysis of the food you're eating, I think is always, it's always an interesting thing. And I think that, you know, more often than not, it can help chefs grow and develop. And I mean, I've certainly gotten inspiration for things that I've done down the line by eating sushi at, you know, this place or that place or overseas or whatever. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. What ingredients could we use to do something kind of along those same lines at Zilla? I think I enjoy that part of it too. The comparison is not, is it going to be as good or is my sushi as good as this? It's just looking at similarities and differences and really the ability to get inspiration from eating somebody else's sushi. I mean, even at Zilla, the sushi that comes from, I think me and my head sushi chef, Jeff, is a really good example of this because both of our sushi, I would say, is good. You know, he is... He's an excellent sushi chef. That being said, our sushi is very different in a lot of ways. It may not be different, noticeably different to the guest, but as a sushi chef, it's noticeably different for the two of us. And I think that that's where being a sushi chef, going to eat, you know, at like a really highly revered sushi place, like the most notably for me was most recently was Sushi Nakazawa in New York. I think that was the last like major, really well-known sushi bar that I ate at was Sushi Nakazawa. And so looking at like, I also had the incredible fortune to have Nakazawa-san make my sushi. I got to sit in front of him. And so, you know, as I'm 
looking at his sushi and thinking about my sushi, it's not as much like, I mean, some of it was like, oh, cool. Okay. I do the same thing. So I must not be totally off base here. I mean, there's definitely some of that. And that's a both a humbling and like a whew kind of a, you know, moment when I realized like, oh, okay, this is a little bit similar. So like, I must be at least on the right path here. And that's always a relief. But it's more of a like, oh, this is cool. This sushi chef is doing something like this or like the way they cut the fish is a little bit longer and more narrow. I wonder if that's because they want a different mouthfeel of the piece of sushi when, you know, you eat it or like thinking just about kind of those intellectual pieces of what we do. And that's what I guess what I mean when I'm talking about analysis and comparison. And I I really do like that. I like thinking about sushi. I'm nerdy, so I like pondering things. What's the most common mistake that people make when ordering or eating sushi? Not being aware of the type of sushi bar that they are in. Sushi has all different types of sushi. There are a lot of different approaches to sushi. I think it's important to understand the type of sushi that you're going to eat. There is absolutely a place in the sushi world for the, you know, volcano rolls and things covered in tempura crunchies and uh, spicy mayonnaise and like stuffed with cream cheese. I mean, I think most of us can agree that whatever your feelings are about how that fits into sushi, like, I mean, it tastes pretty good. So there's a place in the world for that just as much as there is like corn dogs, you know what I mean? Like, but I think it's important when you go to a sushi bar to know what kind of sushi bar you're going to and to approach as a customer, as a guest, as someone who's eating that sushi to understand how to get the most out of the experience of the restaurant you're going to. So like, for example, at Zilla, in my opinion, you will not get the most out of your experience if you come in and drown your sushi, even if it's a roll, like drown it in soy sauce, wasabi, and eat it with like four pieces of ginger on top. And the reason is not because there's anything wrong with the way this person or that person chooses to eat their sushi. It's because at Zilla, we are so ingredient driven, everything that we do is pretty simple. So you're not going to get a roll that can withstand a ton of shoyu, wasabi, and ginger on it and still be able to taste what we're serving you. Often we dress the sushi for our guests uh, because we have a certain way that we like to do that. We think that it supports and highlights the flavor of the fish and the ingredients that we've chosen the best. And so I think that it's important to know what kind of sushi bar you're going to. What's next for you professionally? You're running the restaurant, you got this great sake program. What's next? Anything on the horizon or is it just kind of continuing to do what you do? Maybe I'll I'll go pursue that master's in mathematics once and for all. <laughs> for I am open to opportunities and ideally I would love to have more opportunities to diversify my career. So I love running Zilla. I enjoy making sushi. It's a huge part of my identity of who I've, you know, come to be at this point in my life. And when I don't make sushi, I really miss it. That being said, I'd like to do more, you know, have more media opportunities, do things where I get to to talk about what I love and you know, I've reached the age of the chef where I'm like, yeah, it's not as much fun and it's harder to stand for like eight to 10 hours at a time. And, you know, if I can find ways to continue to pass the torch to, to be able to share what I'm passionate about and what I've spent more than half of my life 
doing. I, when I got to the point where I was like, I have been a sushi chef for more than half my life. Like, holy crap, that's a really long time. You know, the whole thing for me in the later part of my career, as I was training, starting to train people. And as I realized that training people was um, something that gave me like so much enjoyment and, and so much of just this feeling of I'm really doing something. I mean, I always felt with sushi, like I was doing something. I'm providing really unique and interesting experience for the person sitting in front of me. And as I got into the training portion of my career, it became important to me to pass along knowledge. Like that became a huge objective for me to not just to pass the torch to the next generation of sushi chefs, but to assist in the educational process of becoming a sushi chef. Because I believe that sushi chefing is much more than knife skills. It is a mentality to keep us in the right mentality. At Zilla, we label and date things in Japanese. We got a little relaxed about that during COVID, but you know, now we're getting back to labeling and dating in Japanese, which means if you're a sushi chef that wants to come through Zilla, most likely we would be honored to have you. You at some point will need to learn how to read and write some Japanese. And that keeps us in a humble, educationally focused mindset, which in my opinion is the best place to be in for a sushi chef to continue progressing. Jeff and I often talk about the moment as a sushi chef that you feel like I've got this, like no problem, piece of cake. I know what I'm doing. That's the moment that you start to limit yourself and you start to inhibit that growth and that educational piece. And I think that the education needs to not just be around knife skills. I mean, people want to get into sushi because it's cool. And I agree wholeheartedly. Sushi, really, really cool. Like it's an amazing thing. And it's an amazing thing to be able to say, you know, for me that I've been a sushi chef for 22 years. Like I own a sushi bar. I still work four nights a week as a sushi chef. I love sushi just as much today as I did that very first day that I was exposed to it. That's an amazing thing. But I think that being a well-rounded sushi chef is just as important, if not more important than having good knife skills. And as cool as it is, I want the people who are a willing to listen and be trained by me. And, you know, even those people who don't go into sushi, but who listen to this podcast or have heard me on whatever other thing they might've heard me on. I really want to get across the message that sushi chefing is so much more than just the sushi. We are ambassadors of an entire culture. We need to incorporate these aspects of Japanese culture, language, humility, being honorable, like all these things into what we do as sushi chefs. Because without that, we are cooks with great knife skills. But this cultural piece sets us apart and not in a sense that we're better, but sets us separate in our own niche from the rest of the culinary world. Like we get to be part of the culinary world and yet there are these things that we have where we get to feel really proud that we're doing something different. And I think that those other pieces, they're crucial to what we do to being a good sushi chef. Because like I said, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with being, you know, a line cook with excellent knife skills, but like I was told the first day or two when I got into sushi, you are not a sushi chef yet. 
You cannot call yourself a sushi chef when you go out. It is a title that is earned. You have not earned it yet. It's something to be taken very seriously. And this is where that traditional side of my training, that traditional influence early on, you know, I'm super grateful for because I can say that I was taught humility as a sushi chef very early on. I was told never to get too big for my britches. I was told the instant you think like, yeah, this is easy. I got this. Like, I don't have anything else to learn. Like, then you're done learning and you're done progressing and your career will stop at that point. You might get a better paying job, but you're never going to be a better chef than you are at that moment where you become complacent. We can't only not get complacent about our knife work. We also have to not get complacent about pulling in that cultural piece. And that's, it's essential for moving sushi in a positive and a, and an evolutionary direction in modern day United States is to look forward to the future. And we can pick and choose, right? Because it's 2022. We've got women sushi chefs. We're modern now as, you know, as a sushi culture, but we get to pick and choose, but it's important to bring some of those historical pieces along with us, or we will forget why we even do this in the first place. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Dave Pint. He's the chef owner of Burnt Ends in Singapore and the Burnt Ends Hospitality Group. He left behind a question for you. If you had one meal to cook and it had to be a barbecue meal, what would you cook and who would it be for? The barbecue sauce that we ate growing up, growing up in Corvallis, Oregon, was a Carolina style barbecue sauce. And it came, the recipe came from some friends of my parents in uh, North Carolina, and we call it Sue's barbecue sauce. It would be like my mom's barbecue chicken with that sauce. I would love to cook it for my family, you know, and my parents. My son, uh, my partner, my brother, maybe John and Sue Fisher. I don't you know who, who the recipe came from, but that barbecue sauce is the barbecue sauce that I always make at home when I grill. And I guess it's really like grilling, not barbecuing. I don't know. I think that people who are in that area of you know the culinary world, they also get very specific about terminology just like we do. And I am not uh, experienced enough in barbecue, I guess, to maybe use the proper terminology for things, but... That's the barbecue sauce that I would make. And I, I would make it for family, whoever was around to eat it. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. Honestly, the one that comes to mind, right? I feel like this is a pretty classic question to ask a chef is like, if you could only pick one kind of meat to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? This next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, they wrote in, what's the most approachable sake for someone new to the beverage to start with? Yukino Bosha Junmai Ginjo. Is that because of just the amount of rice polish or the flavor or easy to find? Well, if you're in Portland, it's relatively easy to find or like other large cities, Seattle, San Francisco, LA, New York. I'm not sure in smaller towns how easy it will be to find. It's because it is the most balanced sake that I can think of. It's not sweet. It's not dry. It's a little bit fruity and floral, but not overwhelmingly so. It has a nice delicate nature to it, but it can also stand up to food. It's it's not good warm. That's the one thing I will say about Yukino Boshij and Maginjo. Don't warm it up. I have never in the 15 years that I've been at Zilla, or almost 15 years, I have never met a single person that I have recommended that to that didn't like it. So this last set of questions we asked to everybody who comes on the podcast, so a nice compare and contrast across the episodes 
for all the listeners. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far, looking back on it? I mean, the person who really had the most influence over what I do in some ways really was my dad because he suggested that I apply as a server to the Japanese restaurant, you know, before I was ever even a sushi chef, the one that was in my hometown. And without that, I would have never applied as a server at the Japanese restaurant in Arizona and I wouldn't be a sushi chef. The other person I will say is, as I affectionately like to say, that the two older grumpy Japanese gentlemen that were my traditional, more traditional trainers um, when I first started, I think they gave me an incredible foundation uh, for what I do. And I think that without those fundamental skills, especially because I didn't have any skills coming in, you know, I wouldn't be able to be as picky now about, you know, what I do. I'm very grateful to them for that. I grew up cooking, you know, with both of my parents. My sushi career, definitely my Japanese mentors, but overall, absolutely my parents because they helped me learn about food from an incredibly young age and and that helped me just to, to be in food and understand it better, I think. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? A toaster oven both in my home kitchen and in my professional kitchen. It's it's the toaster oven. Restaurant you recommend that isn't your own. So a scenario I usually give is person gets stuck at the airport, flight gets canceled. They reach out to you. You guys aren't open. Hey, where should we go eat? We got uh, time for one meal here in Portland. You point them in this direction. It's such a hard one. I mean, Portland has uh, so many so many amazing restaurants. I would say there's a restaurant called Wajan that's fairly close to my house, actually. Indonesian food, which is not a widely represented ethnic culinary cuisine in Portland. But Fenny is... The first time I ate there, um, I actually got a takeout. And I am not kidding you. I called the restaurant halfway through my dinner to tell them how incredible the food was. And I don't think I've ever done that. It blew me away. Don't eat there as often as I probably should, but you know, but I've been there a number of times and it's always just as good as I remember from that first time. Not to be missed for sure. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurants. So a place you have not visited yet, you still want to go to. Also a place you have not eaten at yet, but you still want to dine at one day. The bucket list destination just to go are the Maldives, the Maldive Islands. I have always wanted to go there. Um, I have, you know, like 50 places on my bucket list of travel destinations. Um, I think that one is probably like the most remote of the places on my list that I have not been to. And it just is, no, it's so peaceful looking. It looks like the opposite of a kitchen, professional kitchen. I have thought a lot about this. You know, as far as restaurants go, I have had the good fortune in my life to be able to eat at everything from Soba window on a train platform in Tokyo that I didn't even know. I didn't even know that place existed before, you know, I stumbled upon it to, you know, Michelin star restaurants. And I, my best experiences and my most memorable were places that I didn't anticipate going to. And so I would say that my wish and my hope is that I will have more of those experiences in the future of restaurants that I didn't even know existed before I stumbled across them. I mean, there's a sushi place in Yuri Honjo that was like that. There's the soba noodles on, you know, the 
Tokyo train station platform. There, there's so many of those that for me stick out. I can't name a specific place. I just hope that I have good enough luck to stumble across some more really amazing and memorable places. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Somebody lit themselves on fire once at Zilla. It was New Year's Eve. We used to have a whole bunch of candles in the front window and the, on, on this kind of fixed wood shelf. And all of a sudden we were like, what's burning? And we looked over and somebody had leaned against the shelves and their leather coat was literally on fire. Luckily, it's about my own restaurant and luckily they were totally fine. But that was pretty bonkers. I mean, you don't see a lot of people aflame in a restaurant. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, anything that's pretty unhealthy, but uh, you just can't help yourself. Sausage burritos from McDonald's breakfast. McDonald's breakfast is really like my guilty pleasure. I probably get it a couple of times a month. I drop my kiddo off at school. I go through the drive-thru and I always get a sausage burrito, hash browns, a bacon egg McMuffin with extra American cheese and an orange juice. And then I come home and I put the tea on and watch television and eat my McDonald's breakfast. That's the routine. Like I said, once once or twice a month. I mean, I don't do it like excessively. Favorite Instagram account you follow? Just like the one that uh, you never really skip over. You just always enjoy whatever it is that they post about, whether it's memes or travel photography or whatever. I am not as present on social media as I probably should be. Most of my feed is taken up with plants and cats. That being said, I mean, I feel like my love of plants and my love of cats is at a reasonable level. I mean, I'm not like in danger of, you know, becoming an animal hoarder or anything like that. I have one cat and one dog. My favorite Instagram account, I mean, I mean, I could be really intellectual about this and say that I do follow like the New Yorker comics Instagram account. And I always find those funny, but I really like the plant ones that show like repotting. It shows you like how to repot either like gigantic plants or like little tiny newbie plants. I don't have a specific answer for that one. What's one cookbook that everyone should own? I would say one that has very detailed thought out instructions because a lot of cookbooks, the directions aren't written as clearly as I think they should be. It is very difficult to write a recipe actually to write down those steps. And, and a cookbook that gives really good step-by-step instructions is an invaluable part of a collection, I think. What's the one that you would recommend? When I was a teenager, I went through a vegetarian phase and for like a few years. And my mom got me, and I'm trying to remember what the cookbook is called, but it's this vegetarian cookbook. I wonder if I have it on my shelf right here. If you give me just a second, I might be able to pull it out of here. Um, not not quickly. The, another one I would say is like a good local cookbook for your area. So like growing up, my mom had some Oregon cooks. I think the Moosewood cookbook is an Oregon cookbook if it's maybe it might not be pacific northwest at least but yeah like a good regional cookbook i think is important i mean as far as like specific names i don't use cookbooks much but i also think cookbooks that tell a good story are important favorite dish thing you ever cooked created you know you can kind of point to this moment as almost like your aha moment you knew you could be a professional chef based on how this went Yeah, because I would say my personal cooking, I never had an aha moment that like, okay, this means I could do this professionally. I learned to cook as a cook or as a chef, like after I was already a sushi chef, because as I always say, we don't really, we don't cook things. I cut things up for a living and make rice. I would say 
probably with sushi, it was when I realized that every time I made rice, I wasn't on like pins and needles that it was going to turn out okay, which took years and years and years. And to be perfectly honest with you, now that I'm kind of out of practice, like I don't make the rice every single shift that I work anymore. I'm back on pins and needles. You know, so when I'm training somebody, like working with somebody now who's a trained sushi chef, but I mean, we do things a little bit differently. So we're kind of retraining some things with him. And so I told him, I'm like, hey, you know, for me, I mean, whenever that rice goes in there now, because I only make rice like a couple of times a month, like I feel like it's kind of a crapshoot for me too. And I'm just like crossing my fingers, hoping that I had the right combination of feeling the, you know, the air humidity and like calculating the percentage of water that's going to go in. But I think, yeah, once I got to the point that, and I would also say when I was able to do what we call katsudamuki, so that's a column peel with cucumbers, we do it with daikon. When I was able to do that proficiently, I mean, because again, even now it's something that I, you know, I have to think about while I'm doing, but those two things, the rice and the katsudamuki, I'm like, okay, I can do this. There's a long way to go, but I've at least got my foot in the door of really being taken seriously for this because I've got decent knife skills and I can make rice without totally screwing up a batch of rice. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, If you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that always stands out to you about him? Or if you weren't, is there anybody else who was a culinary personality, uh, Emeril, Guy Fieri, Jacques Rapin, Julia Child, somebody who was on TV, but you always kind of gravitated towards them when you were coming up through your career? I was an Anthony Bourdain fan. I um, still am. And I wasn't a religious you know, viewer of his show, but I did watch a fair amount of, of No Reservations. I will never forget when he's in Namibia and he's sitting like facing the camera and he just says, I've eaten a lot of dirt and feces on this trip. And I was like, damn, that's probably really accurate. And he's talking about, uh, you know, they did that, was it an ostrich egg or a and they made like like an omelet out of it, but it was in a dirt hole in the ground. So it was, they're breaking off pieces of this omelet, like giving it to him. And he's, he's dusting the ash off of it. Like, how do I eat this without looking like a complete asshole, right? Like, and then the camera just, it, it's so focused on him and he's sitting on the ground and he's just like eating a lot of dirt and feces on this trip. And it's like the same one where they throw like a pig colon or, or hog colon or something like in this dirt hole probably also. Having those kinds of experiences, like regardless of what they are and really putting yourself out there is something to be highly respected. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. Our website is zillasake.com. Zilla like Godzilla. I do have an Instagram. It's Kate Yanagi Koo, which is my handle. We got a website. We have the Instagram. Um, you can find me on YouTube, that eater video. Um, if you just type my name in, Kate Koo. I have found things that I like, was like, oh yeah, that was a really cool interview. Or wow, that was a long time ago. Periodically, I Google myself. I'm sure there will be things that pop up on there too. You can find some like old pictures from Zilla on like Google images, probably from, you know, 15 years ago. Like, oh, that's what she looked like when she was 30. You guys are open uh, days, hours, 
We're open Tuesday through Saturday, 4.30. We do our last seating at 9. Uh, highly recommend reservations because on some, it's unpredictable. On some days we have, you know, we're 50% walk-ins and on other days we are 90% reservations. And I can almost guarantee you that if it's a Friday or Saturday night between, you know, 5.30 and 7.30, like we probably won't be able to see you. We're very, very small. I think we have a total of like 40 seats so we definitely recommend reservations just to make sure that you can come in and have our sushi. This was awesome. Thank you again for coming on and taking the time to chat about your career. You know, there's not many women sushi chefs and, you know, whenever we have the opportunity to talk sushi in general with anybody, you know, it's one of my favorite things to eat. So I always get the chance to nerd out with people about sushi and it's, it's a lot of fun for me. So I don't know when exactly we'll make it to Portland, but it's on the list. Hopefully sooner than later, I, I have that Pacific Northwest trip that's been in my mind for uh, a year or two now. So I definitely want to do that. And there's a great wine scene too in Oregon, which I definitely want to check out because we haven't been there for that. And that's another thing I'm kind of a nerd about too. So check out varietals with wine other than Pinot Noir. Like I love Pinot Noir. I was raised in Oregon, you know, yeah, Pinot Noir fan for sure. However, there are other varietals in Oregon that are excellent. Pinot Noir is definitely worth checking out. I mean, Oregon is famous for it, but check out some of the other varietals too, because we have other cool things going on for sure. Some Italian varietals like flourish here and they're they're really, really good. Yeah, I can't wait to, you know, get the chance to stop in the Tazilla and eat some sushi. So Hopefully that'll be sooner than later. Stay in touch. If you need anything from us, let us know. Always an open invitation for anybody to come back on the podcast. We'll talk about whatever new menu or new restaurant concept or open, whatever, 15, 20 minutes. Always down to support everybody as much as we can as they support us as when they come on. So, but otherwise, good luck with the Saki program and expanding. And hopefully we'll see you soon. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really great to be able to, to talk with you. A big thanks again to Kate for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of you know her day to come on and talk about her career and being part of the 100th episode, 100th interview that we've done. So super proud of that. Just kind of worked out that way. It wasn't exactly planned or anything, but sushi's you know one of my favorite things. So it's always cool when I get to talk to a sushi chef and her being a talented sushi chef and then also a female sushi chef, which is not a whole lot of, you know, we try and have as many on the podcast as we can find, but you know, some don't want to do the podcast, some don't want to do interviews and others, you you know, just harder to find. So super awesome to have her on. So again, you can follow her on Instagram, Kate Yanagi Koo, and then also the restaurant at Zilla Sake PDX. Follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob, all the other social medias too as well, either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob 1, depending on the platform. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. And make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, wherever podcast uh, app you're using. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Amazon Music. We're on anything and everything. We might even be on Pandora now. Kind of got us resubmitted and through finally. So if you've been around since the very first episodes, that's always been the one platform that has, for whatever reason, never allowed us on there. I really don't even know how you navigate two podcasts on Pandora, but if you do know, we might be on there now. So I think the only outstanding thing is like XM Radio, which is all run by the same parent company, Stitcher and Pandora and XM. I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Who knows? Maybe they'll put us on there. If you are one of the early listeners from the early days, thank you, you know, for being here, continuing to listen, continuing to supporting the podcast. Really appreciate it. Continue to help spread the word. If you're new, welcome. 
hope you've enjoyed the episode so far, wherever you kind of first picked up and make sure to go through the back catalog and catch up on any of the episodes that you've missed. Pretty much all the information is still relevant. You know, maybe there's a few recent updates, you know, if uh, Chef opened a new concept and they haven't come back on yet or something like that, but all the stuff from their career is still relevant. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, I encourage you to go back and shout out to all the chefs that got uh, James Beard noms, you know, BJ here in Columbus, and then also Josh Habiger over at Bastion, two Spoon Mob podcast alumni we've had on. So that's awesome to see. And uh, I'm sure we'll be having more in the future from, you know, last year's nom nominations. Rico Torres from Mixley, you know, he got a nomination last year, so he's been on the podcast too. So we got a handful of them. You know, awards aren't something that I think a lot of chefs are super big on. Recognition's great, but that's kind of not why you do it. And, you know, same mindset here. You know, it's awesome to see those people get recognized, but there's a lot of great restaurants that don't, and that's just the way it is. But uh, wanted to just kind of give those guys a, a highlight real quick. That's it for kind of this week's episode. Some more episodes on the way. I don't know how many episodes we'll do this year. I haven't really figured that out yet. You know, you go through periods of burnout and then you get re-inspired. So it just kind of depends. I don't know. It'll be somewhere between 25 and 50. I just don't know how aggressive we'll be with how many episodes with scheduling and everything like that too as well. But we got some more cool episodes on the way. I'm super excited for some of the content. I think it's stuff that people haven't really focused on. They focused on the surface level, but never really got into like the nitty gritty of kind of what it is and fully understanding, you know, that specific thing. So that'll be really fun, I think, for people to check out some upcoming episodes that we got coming on. So thank you again for all your continued support. Uh, Continue to spread the word. And we will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.